Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Okay, here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello again. And basically last time we went over the timeline of stuff that happened with Napoleon. And that was a whole show. Yeah, just his his crazy military career. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a lot happened in that 15 year period. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's quite remarkable how much he got done. So today I figured we'd go over basically everything that wasn't on that timeline kind of drill down on uh i mean i i have a list of things that i thought i'd mention but anything that we want to talk about in a little more detail let's just do it because well at this point we're never going to cover everything so we might as well cover what we want a couple quick things to yeah start let's do off, it that's okay sure what's up with the hat oh that's just a uh that that would be worn by a number of military, like like higher up military officers. It's kind of officers. I, I don't understand why it came to be associated with him. Like nowadays, if you see that hat, it's like it's Napoleon. Yeah, hat. it's it's called it's called a bicorn hat, and essentially the idea of it is that there there would be there'd be like a button and it would like fold down for if it was raining. Okay. But um, stylish and uh... Napoleon was not a man who was afraid to have his portrait painted. <laughs> and in well, I mean, well, let's let's think about all the things that you think of when you think of Napoleon. The bicorn hat is one of them. That's because a lot of pictures were painted with him wearing that hat. The uh, the hand in the waistcoat is very much associated with the uh, with Napoleon. Yeah. Some people have theorized that he was already developing stomach problems very early on. Uh, I think that's a stretch, personally. Yeah. It was actually a fairly common pose for nobility if you if you had a waistcoat that was a I, I mean you had to stand there for hours to have your portrait painted hey, like what are you gonna do have your arms hanging at your sides yeah it's it's just kind of straight rigid yeah cross cross your arms like it's i i don't know that you know some not guys a, not a situation we've ever found ourselves in some some guys will you know hold a cane or something <laughs> napoleon he he tucked one of his hands in his in his waistcoat so you know that's that's about all there is to it well that was another thing um kind of iconic Napoleon things. And this one I actually knew, mm-hmm. but I only learned very recently, is that 
he's portrayed even in like kind of modern media like he's in some video games he's very short yeah napoleon was about five foot six which by today's standards is maybe a little below average sure i i think i think probably if you ran the numbers average today would be somewhere between five eight and five nine something along that yeah so, something like that i don't know for sure um, but back then Oh, if I, I mean, you're talking about differences in just straight up nutrition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, five six was considered very average at that point in time. No one would, no one would comment on the height of someone uh, of a man who was five foot six. No, no the uh, the misunderstanding there. Uh, actually, that's a great place to jump in. The French Revolution, as I mentioned last time, was very much about breaking with anything royalists and anything traditional in any way possible. And one thing that had kind of come up philosophically around the same time was this idea that we should figure out a better way of standardizing measurements. And this is basically where the, the, the metric system was born. Right. And I, I'm, I'm sure you probably know a lot of this stuff, but for, for the benefit of anyone who doesn't, the metric system is, uh, was an attempt to scientifically create a, a, a system of measurement that would be as as standardized and as logical as possible. So first of all, everything would be in, in or, uh, orders of magnitude of, of, of tens. So, and, and, and what's more, the, the measurements themselves would tell you how they related. So there, there would be 100 centimeters in one meter, not, not you know, 12 inches in a foot and all of that nonsense, right? Because when you get into some of the, like how many feet are there in a mile? Do you, do you, do you, do you remember that thing? It's like 2,000 and couple hundred odd like it's it's some it's something ridiculous random arbitrary no number sense. oh and some of those imperial uh uh units are just ridiculous names chains what's a chain <laughs> how many how many chains to an acre i don't know i always like furlong oh yeah nice i don't know how much that is i wouldn't i wouldn't be able to tell you if a furlong would fit in my apartment or not get me to work i don't know <laughs> i don't know i honestly don't know yeah and then you've got miles versus nautical miles it's it's a mess right so basically people went uh, they said while we're shaking everything up let's maybe take a look at the measurement system uh in in uh, 1799 they finally got an accurate accurate well somewhat accurate measurement of the circumference of the earth and the kilometer is used as a fraction of the distance from the pole to the equator so uh, that's 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 the basis of a of a meter, and once they had measured that out, they basically cut a bar one meter long, and it was put in a temperature controlled room, and every other meter was measured off of that. Right? It's it's kind of, I mean, you have to standardize somehow, but they didn't really stop with because you know something like that that version of of measuring length makes some level of sense. Volume was based on water essentially i mean a a milliliter was it was the volume of one cubic centimeter of water right and a kilogram was the mass of one cubic decimeter of water so 10 centimeters to a side a a cube of water would weigh or or which is which is one liter would weigh one kilogram so and and this is where Celsius comes in as well, where zero is the freezing point, 100 is the boiling point. So they tried to get it as like as as scientifically sensible as they could, and then they got crazy doing things like 10 hour days with 100 minutes to the hour. Metric time. Metric time came yeah. in. Yeah. 
which is bonkers. It is bonkers. And I mean, maybe that's that's something that I'm, you know, that we're talking about culturally, you know, going, you know, who, who could possibly tell time that way? And maybe if we had grown up with metric time, we would have gone, well, of course it makes sense to do this. But... It probably is. I, so, so you get really messy. I buy one of the other calendars before I buy, like, metric time. Yeah. Our calendar's wonky. Uh, yeah. Our calendar is, like, the best thing that they came up with 500 years ago. Yeah. Uh, no longer than that ago but anyways it, it doesn't matter or not this isn't a discussion about <laughs> measurement systems no. um, but what is interesting about this is that Napoleon basically said okay you know what guys yeah for science metric is great for everyday use people are confused let's go back to something that's a little bit more reasonable so let's ditch the metric time for for a long time after the revolution they were using uh, a revolutionary calendar so they had renamed all of the months to things that no one knew. Mm. For example, uh, the revolution or the, the coup d'etat in which uh, Napoleon took power was known as the um, the 18 Brumaire revolution. And Brumaire was a uh, was a month basically meant foggy because at that time in the fall France tended to get really foggy. But they didn't feel like calling it October anymore. <laughs> So, I, I, like, you got a lot of that kind of thing going on in the revolution. And, and part of what was going on in the revolution was everyone was trying to, like, out, out-revolutionize everyone else and try to claim the things like... I am from <laughs> yeah, royalty. Anything traditional was up for, uh, was up for questioning. Right. And anything you could do to, 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 you know, demonstrate that you were more for the new order than the guy next to you was something that would uh, keep you a little further away from the guillotine. So you get things like new month names. And, you know, Napoleon kind of went, you know, let's, let's be What's reasonable about this. Unfortunately, one of the things that he did as, as a result of this was rather than going back to the standard imperial, there was like a creation of a new type of imperial, which was loosely based on metric measurements. I don't... Why is that helpful? Because they didn't want to go back to the royalist imperial oh, system, okay. but they also felt that, say, for example, the inch was a more reasonable, or, or more specifically, the foot was a more reasonable measurement of, of distance in terms, like in human terms, in ergonomic terms. Because the meter is kind of a clunky measuring device, you know? Like, it's kind of, like, do you know, do you know your height in metric? No. I wish I did, just so I could say that I did, but I don't. And and yet technically we're all you know it's it's Canada we're on the metric system. Yeah. I I think I know what mine is from my driver's license. <laughs> Again, people people tend to know their weight in pounds rather than kilograms because it just it kind of makes a little more sense in their heads for whatever reason. I've heard it referred to as simperial. So whatever's easier, go with that one. Yeah. Um, because because he kind of tried to do this thing halfway, you ended up with all these janky. French only measurements and the French inch actually ended up being slightly longer than the standard imperial inch which meant that when his height was expressed in French inches it made him sound really really short when in reality he was very average this is how this all kind of comes back around and it's not that no one knew this but the British felt that even just for propaganda reasons they didn't feel like it was worth bothering to clear up any misconceptions about his height. So, you know, when they said, I forget what his height was in French inches, but if he... Or know, something, I imagine. 
I thought it was like five one or something, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter when 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 they see his height listed as five one, they don't bother to say. But that's French inches, and those are different, so that people have the opportunity to go, "Ha ha, the guy's five one or or four, whatever." Yeah, it was. He almost deserves the ridicule for, you know, only half converting to the metric system. And it's funny because he was so. He was so strong in mathematics, that was where his, his background was schooling-wise, that you'd think that he would be able to do a better job with something like a system of measurements when in charge. Mm-hmm. Basically, his system stood until, I believe, 1838, when they basically went back to metric entirely. They were still teaching metric in school, but beside the French system for a very long time. But yeah, that's that's where the confusion over his height came from. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of that, that revolutionary stuff that he kind of backpaddled on a little bit. The calendar of the time and the uh, the metric system are the are the biggest places that he that he had a significant impact there. Now, was there anything else that you had off the bat that uh, that you wanted to bring up? Or I think that was most of the like fact v fiction stuff I had. Sure. And uh, I say that staring at this at this wonderful painting that you uh-huh. have here conveniently. Yeah. I I mean. It's it's a great painting because it, it, there's there's actually another version of Napoleon crossing the Alps, which is like the the realistic version, and it shows him like huddled over on his horse, like in a blanket, and all the horses are stooped, and it's snowing, and it's it looks terrible. But this is just so iconic. I mean, look, he he looks majestic. He does. In the bottom left corner, you'll notice that his name is on a rock there, Bonaparte, <laughs> yep. and underneath it it says Hannibal, Hannibal. The, the one who famously crossed the Alps into uh, into Italy during the, the Punic Wars, during Rome. It's another kind of connection to the Roman Empire. No, he, was, he was obsessed with connecting himself to the Roman Empire. Anything that connects you to the Roman Empire gives you some sort of, if not legitimacy, then at least a sense of grandeur. I mean, he also sent out, you know, it, during, during battles, the French standard was always a, a big gold eagle, which was the symbol of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. Right. But... You know, that, that painting kind of associating himself with Hannibal, who was, you know, despite not being Ro- Roman, was one of the greatest commanders of, of all time. He would be he would be put up there with with um, Alexander the Great uh, when when people were thinking of, of great, you know, great military commanders. So he's very, very deliberately associating himself since since we're on military stuff. Let's let's talk a little bit about how Napoleon fought a war. The interesting thing there is that he didn't do a lot of new stuff. There wasn't there wasn't a lot about the way Napoleon fought a war that was innovative, really. He did a good job of taking old elements and using them very, very well. So he had good fundamentals. He had very good fundamentals. There was another quote I saw one time that basically said, I didn't fight my 60th battle any differently than the way I fought my first. Basically saying a good commander knows how to command, and you know you you have that innate knowledge from he from did the outset. Have some loss well, I mean, he's also a megalomaniac who was obsessed with image. Yeah. Sure, no, he had losses, but I, I think his his point was more if you if you intrinsically understand battle command, then you understand it, and there's only so much that experience can do to help you uh, become better. How true that is, I don't care to comment on but uh he, he very much believed that he was innately uh, as skilled as alexander the great as julius caesar as hannibal but but interestingly enough he he, he so con- considered himself a, 
a contemporary, well, not a contemporary, but a, a peer of those commanders that he didn't even bother studying their battles, which is very rare for great commanders. They'd often go over over famous battle plans and, and sort of analyze them. Uh, he didn't care to. He felt that he, he had nothing to gain there. Look, he criticized him for that, but he did quite well. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is the that is kind of the end of the day there. Basically, the way Napoleon fought was he divided up his army into uh, corps, so C-O-R-P-S, bodies. And he wanted each corps to be self-sufficient. So it's, it's commanders to have a fairly high level of autonomy. He wanted it to be extremely fast, extremely mobile, extremely capable of reacting on, on short notice. So he wanted it to be as flexible as possible. He wanted each corps to be self-sufficient in that they would provide for themselves there was a saying in the in the French army, basically, uh, fight the war to feed the war, which is basically a romantic way of saying pillage what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you're running out of food, go fight some more, and then you'll find some more people with food to take from, from which, them. you know, uh, referencing your last episode is one of the reasons why um, the Russian strategy was so effective against them. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, at the end of the day... The biggest things that he did differently than, say, the the British at this point in time, he tended to march in square formation rather than line formation. Basically, the advantage that that gives you is protection from cavalry attacks, and it gives you uh, the ability to switch direction of orientation fairly easily. And the reason he liked that, it, like it, it, so it it underpowers you a little bit if you're considering like one single direction, but he liked getting into the thick of things, breaking through a line and then, and then attacking each side once they had been broken. And the best way to do that is to have a line that can fight in two directions at, at, at a time, right. which is where the square formation is, is extremely strong. But the square formation has been used for thousands of years. It's not like it was anything new. It's just that not a lot of people were doing it with muskets. The thing with muskets is that you want to sort of concentrate fire as much as possible because a musket is only, I I mean, professional soldiers were were accurate to maybe 80 yards Mm -hmm. if they were really good. And anything after that, it dropped significantly in terms of accuracy. Significantly. So... He was losing a little bit of potential by putting guys on sides that, that that might not be super effective, but he was gaining a lot of flexibility and a lot of mobility. He used his cavalry to really good effect, but that was mostly mostly because the British were using lines, not squares. Lines are vulnerable to cavalry; squares are not. Uh, in later battles, when when coalition forces were using squares, his cavalry were not that effective. So why works. is that? Why is the uh, cavalry not as effective against squares? So a cavalryman at this point in time would have a musket. Uh, they would have a slightly shorter musket usually um, because they're riding a horse. But you can't reload a musket on a horse. So mainly what they were fighting with was swords. They would have swords that are like a little bit over uh, three feet long. They'd be a straight sword and they'd be weighted towards the tip. And basically the idea is that you kind of, you're riding the horse and you point the tip downward and you sort of swing your arm back and forth as you ride. Muskets at this point in time would almost always have a bayonet fixed to the end. So if you're in a square, you have guys pointed out in every direction. Horses ride at you, you plant your musket with its bayonet tip, it will take out the horse. If you're in a line and the horses manage to flank the line, so they get on either side, 
or behind, you have almost no protection. Right. I mean, individuals might be able to turn around and and attack uh, the cavalrymen. The itself, which is kind of the strength of the formation, would be broken. Exactly. Lines only work while they have integrity. So once they started using stronger formations against against directional attacks, uh, that lost all, I shouldn't say all effectiveness, but the majority of the uh, the advantage that it gave the, the French forces. Finally, Napoleon, I mean, coming from uh, an artillery corps as a, as a young man, was very familiar with using artillery to great effect. So the artillery in the French army, like British to be, tend to be big, heavy, like strong guns. French guns tended to be smaller ones. Uh, they would fire a, uh, a six-pound ball as opposed to, well, I mean, anywhere between four and eight. But usually a six-pound ball was the was the standard, whereas the British were firing 10 or 12-pounders. 10 or 12-pounders would have to get dug in, basically, whereas a six-pounder was, was relatively mobile. Mm-hmm. He wanted mobility out of his troops whenever possible. He wanted that flexibility. If the situation changes, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those things where, you know, a, a, a battle plan is... is uh, you know, only good until the first shot is fired or whatever that saying is. He, he wanted to be able to react to whatever situation comes up. So they were smaller guns, but they tended to be fairly accurate. And he uh, he insisted on using the artillery as part of the attack and not simply sort of support for the attack. So where the British might fire at, you know, distant targets for a while and then, you know, stop firing to let the, the infantry, you know, charge in and try and break a line through or break a break a, uh, a gap through a line, Napoleon would continue firing or he, he would want his artillerymen to try and break that line using using shot while the artillery or while the infantry are still advancing. Wasn't that a little risky? Yes. It's also very effective. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. And Napoleon was not a man who was afraid to risk a few infantrymen Clearly for not. a victory. I, and I mean... Part of it is, is the, the expectation of accuracy that he had from his artillerymen that he's basically saying, well, just don't hit the French ones. Uh, which, I, I, yeah, I, I'm being a little bit flippant about, but the French had good artillerymen. They really, really did. Yeah, I would imagine that he would put some focus on that. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really do a lot of new stuff, but he took a lot of older stuff, kind of modernized it a little bit. And just because he ended up fighting all of Europe through this time... Stuff that was developed during the Napoleonic Wars was essentially a military doctrine for the next hundred years. It's not that there were no wars between then and World War I, but there weren't a lot of significant wars between the Napoleonic Wars and World War I. And there are certain there are certain small things that even though they were definitely modernized to accommodate, you know, uh, advances like rifling, like, you know bolt action weapons that are capable of firing more than three shots a minute, you know, things like that. I mean, the trench warfare that you saw in World War One was initially developed by Napoleon, by Napoleon's forces. It was used a lot less heavily, but it was used as a sort of, a sort of improvised cover that they would, they would dig before battles. You see other small elements like that that really stuck around for a long time. Military advances don't happen between wars. They happen in wars. Right. And it's it's funny you you, uh, you see in each major war the beginning of the the beginning of the newer war always looks exactly like the end of the older war just with some some extra spit some extra spit shine on there. And then it gets tweaked in the middle. Oh, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. 
Yeah. So he didn't innovate. He didn't use any brand new strategies, but he seemed to know the very best of the existing ones he used. It's yeah. It's it's he more exploited than anything. Right. You know what I mean? Like he he found all the things that everyone else had missed. If he was playing Street Fighter, then he spammed the button that you know. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. I'm I'm more thinking he's like he's like five years into Smash Brothers and pulling out ice climbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, everyone's going to know what I mean by that. <laughs> but I, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, there wasn't, yeah, there was no patch. It was, he was playing metagame. Okay, well, it seems, it seems like how he approached everything, right? Sure. It's how he approached war, it's how he approached politics. Evidently, it's how he approached his love life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that briefly. He was originally engaged to to a young girl, but broke off the engagement when he met uh, Josephine, who was, uh, I believe he, she was engaged at the time to another officer, and there was a torrid love affair there. And uh, he ended up marry, marrying Josephine fairly early on. Josephine was actually crowned empress with him in 1804. Unfortunately, Josephine did not give him any heirs. Which, you know, is a shame on her. <laughs> yeah, how, how <laughs> dare she, right? <laughs> he ended up divorcing Josephine, which caused this big to do with the catholic church we'll get a little bit more into the church stuff later i thought he really didn't give a hoot about them personally no uh he wasn't particularly religious but i mean france is a very catholic country even at this point in time so Uh, his people gave a hoot even if he didn't oh very much so and i mean when you're talking 200 years ago the blessing of the head of the Catholic Church adds a lot to your legitimacy, just as a ruler, especially if you're talking about ruling divi- by divine right, right, which he wasn't particularly. But the fact that he wasn't ruling div- by divine right meant that he needed all the help he could get in terms of legitimacy. Right. So we were right back to checking with the Pope. This is how these things go sometimes. Makes sense. Now, strangely enough, this girl that he was originally going to marry, is this, this fiancé that had kind of been set up for him, and he was kind of fond of her, but you know, ended up kind of discarding for Josephine. She ended up being connected to to a guy who who uh, basically wanted to take the Swedish throne. And Napoleon wasn't too keen on it, but like because of this connection between him and his, his original fiance, he decided to back this guy. This guy ended up turning on him in the Sixth Coalition. So he always kind of regretted that, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had written down all of those names. I'll add them in the notes. But, uh, yeah, the connections there are kind of convoluted. But, yeah, you can see him kicking himself for that one. Yeah, didn't work out for him. Not so well. When he defeated the Fifth Coalition in 1809, um, he divorced Josephine, as I mentioned last time, and married the Archduchess, Mary Louise, largely for political reasons. But he was kind of also hoping for a male heir, which eventually she did give him. But How many children did he have? I believe it was just the one. I'm going to have to check on that, though. I mean, his children weren't particularly historically notable, so I didn't really follow up too much on the family, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm more men because he was trying to get that male heir. I don't... Again, I was I was all over the place. I don't even know if he had any children with, uh, with Josephine. If he did, it would have been a girl. Um, there was also at least one child from uh, a mistress that he, that he did... Um, acknowledges as as his child but 
I, yeah, I, I don't know the numbers again. I'll add that to the notes really quick. But the, the, the thing about Mary Louise was it was very much a, a marriage of convenience. Uh, she didn't go with him to, uh, to exile either time. And his, his last words supposedly recorded on St. Helena were uh, in part expressing his, his love for Josephine, which is, which is kind of sad. I mean, he was a megalomaniac dictator who indirectly killed thousands of people, but, but that's really sweet. It is. <laughs> in a way. I mean, and add to that that he also, you know, rejected her based on something that's um, <laughs> horrible by any modern standard. True. Now, the thing, the thing that I'm kind of surprised about in that whole arrangement, and maybe maybe this is just something I wasn't able to find, and it did actually happen, and I'm just not aware of it. I'm surprised he didn't keep Josephine around uh, after his marriage to Mary Louise, because especially at this level of society, marriages of political convenience tended to be very much separate from people's actual affection. And so, you know, keeping mistresses was not out of the ordinary whatsoever. Okay. So it's like, takes his existing wife and demotes her to mistress. You know, I, I mean, when he, when he married Josephine, he was very young and it was very much, it was very much an amorous marriage, which is kind of unusual for somebody in his position, but, you know, good for him, I guess. But yeah, I, I mean, I mean, once, once he's at a point where he's turning to political marriages, I imagine Josephine wouldn't take a lot of comfort in being told, you know, this is just this is just because of my job, honey. Uh, <laughs> it's you, you know, you're you're really you're you're still my real favorite. Can't you just be supportive of my work? <laughs> Come on. Uh, I, I I doubt she would have been that happy with it. Yeah. And again, as I said, I, I may just not have come across that information. There's a lot of information, uh, but. But I'm I'm a little bit surprised that that Josephine would have been completely out of the picture, especially considering his his feelings for her. Um, what else did Napoleon do? There's so much. Well, let's talk about the church since we're more or less there, anyways. Uh, in 1801, he 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 put together something called the the well, it was called the Concordat of 1801, where it basically extended a hand to Pope Pius VII. During the revolution, basically everything about the church was rolled into the French government. So everyone down even to parish priests was appointed or even elected, depending on what point we're talking about. And church didn't love that. Like the Pope, you know, like the Pope, he wasn't a huge fan. So the 1801 Concordat gave a lot more power back to the actual church itself. There was still, there was still a little bit more tie into, into the government, but Pre-revolution, the church basically did whatever they wanted. They collected mandatory tithes from people. You know, like they they had a tremendous amount of power in France. So we weren't going back there, but the Concordat of 1801 sort of at least put us on good terms again uh, with, with, with the church. But as I said, Napoleon wasn't that religious. He didn't really care that much about the Pope. Really? Just trying to get him on... Uh... He's, on his side. Yeah, he's doing as best he can for the people of France while, while doing all of this, right? Now, we talked about the continental system last time, the, the economic blockade against England. The Papal States weren't for this. Now, at this point in time, the Papal States were actually a, a group of, of small city-states, not just the Vatican, 
that actually had some political presence, not just spiritual. I mean, that, that transition doesn't come until basically the 1860s. The papal states refused to take part in the continental system, just like Portugal did. And Napoleon responded pretty much like he did to Portugal. He invaded the papal states. Uh, the Pope was mad that he invaded and excommunicated Napoleon. Napoleon had his marshals kidnap the Pope. They carried the Pope around with them for five years. Every once in a while, they would badger him to try and get his approval for this or that. In protest, when he divorced Josephine and married the Archduchess, there were 13 cardinals who refused to attend the wedding despite being invited. It was just like this whole... He kidnapped the Pope. <laughs> he kidnapped the Pope for five kept years. kept him around yeah. as like a personal yeah. Pope puppet. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. The stones on this guy. I know. There are so many episodes surrounding Napoleon that kind of I want to point to and be like, this is who Napoleon is right here. This is him. This one especially. Yeah. He kidnapped the Pope. So, Napoleon's got the Pope. Mm-hmm. They don't go and appoint a new pope? No, the pope's still there. There's still a pope. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, maybe they didn't have any special rules written for kidnappings. Let's, let's not get too deep into to papal succession, but essentially, as long as the pope is alive and has not abdicated, uh, he's still the pope. So he could have abdicated. Yeah, but before Benedict XVI did that a couple of years back, no one had done it since, I believe, the 13th century. Mm. It's not a thing that happens a lot. Most popes serve for life. This guy had special circumstances, though. Well, I mean, he was released after five years, so he went back to being the pope. <laughs> he can still, you know, I, I mean, the Vatican is a huge bureaucracy, right? Like, it, it, it runs itself in a lot of senses. Yeah. It can get through crises like this. I mean... There's a long time where the, the, the popes are, are political rulers as well as spiritual ones. They have things in place to deal with stuff like warfare, like kidnapping. The, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not as though it's never happened before. Yeah, okay. It seems a little crazy now when the pope is basically just like a really old important priest. Yeah. Like, it's, like essentially down at the bottom of things. Like he's, yeah, he's the leader of the Catholic Church, sure. But, you know, this is also... You know, not that far removed from a time when the popes were there. There, there were essentially uh, power dynasties of popes where they were appointing their nephews to be the next pope, and and you know stuff like that going on. Where there's there's actual like you know political power and wealth and stuff like that involved. So there's a lot more mechanisms for dealing with warfare and the like uh, in place around the papacy than than we probably would imagine at this point in time. So he let the Pope go? Yeah, eventually. Why? I had a Pope for five years just doing my Popely bidding. I don't remember why the Pope... I don't don't remember why he let the Pope go, but now that I think about it, it may be because he was defeated. Okay. That timeline timeline would work out, actually. Okay. Yeah. I think it was because he he got defeated. So he conceded his Pope. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) I guess so. Uh, now, there's a number of other things I want to go over here, but we should probably take a quick break for our listeners, and, uh, and we'll be right back after this. Hey guys, 
I was wondering if you might do me a favor this month. Leave a short review or rating of HI101 on iTunes. It doesn't take too much time, and the more feedback the show gets, the higher it appears in the charts, meaning more exposure and more subscribers. Now, I don't pay to advertise this show at all, which means you guys are the reason I'm seeing new listeners every month. And thank you for telling people about this project. If you could do this one more thing for me, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. Now we were just talking briefly uh, off air about the uh, the Tomb of Napoleon. Now you said you've actually seen it. Yes, on my first trip to Europe. Okay. Uh, I, I visited it, and it was it was an intriguing sight. What does it look like? It's it's a strange red box, um, and and you said this, so I'm just going to repeat it because I think it's totally accurate. It looks like the Ark of Covenant from Indiana Jones. <laughs> It's got sort of like uh, scroll work at the at the top, yeah. kind of thing, and it's got like little feet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't initially buried there, as I mentioned to you. Uh, he was he was originally buried on Saint Helena, so he he died there. He was he was buried there, not in the most dignified way. I was about to say, I don't imagine they give him uh, a particularly fancy burial they- given. Didn't exactly build him a statue. Yeah. But in, in 1840, uh, his his family had his body moved back to to Paris, and that that tomb that you've you've seen is at a place called uh, Les Invalides, and they had him moved there. There was a bit of a to do at the time where they didn't know what to put on his tomb because we talk about Napoleon. I mean, his name is Napoleon Bonaparte. Usually, you talk about people by their their last name in in, in history, right? Like you know, we talk about Churchill, not not Winston, right? Nobody yeah. talks about him as Winston. <laughs> my my buddy, my buddy Winston. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But by putting Napoleon the first, it kind of acknowledges his legitimacy as an emperor. Whereas by putting Napoleon Bonaparte on it, that kind of that would be disrespectful to someone who was emperor. And yet, there are factions. You know, this is this is this is twenty five years after all of these wars. There's a lot of feelings wrapped up in in what exactly to put on a tombstone right but like that he was emperor was not up for debate like that was a title he was actually granted and it was acknowledged that he was that correct but it's more how the uh, how, how france at the time was willing to acknowledge him and how to remember him right. so how do we as a nation decide to go forward remembering this man because this is his final resting place, and that's how you, you know, that's what you're doing. You're memorializing, you're commemorating this person. How, when we talk about Napoleon Bonaparte in the in the future, how do we talk about him? And they couldn't come to any decision, and so the tomb itself is actually unmarked. I mean, there's, I, I'm sure there's there's a sign outside saying this way to Napoleon's tomb, but the 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 box, the the weird kind of crypt that he's his, there's his, no inscription. There's no yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's no inscription whatsoever. So yeah, there's there's a lot of there's kind of a lot of controversy about it. While we're while we're kind of on the subject of style, Napoleon's time in Egypt actually had a lot of impact on his sense of style. There's a lot of stuff that he ended up bringing back from Egypt. Like he really became enamored with uh with Egypt while he was there. And in fact, the the modern field of Egyptology was essentially founded while Napoleon was in Egypt. All these French scholars went there while under the protection of the French army being led by Napoleon. 
And they just went nuts on these tombs. They tried figuring out whatever they could figure out and made a lot of inroads because a lot of times the people who lived in Egypt at the time didn't want people going near any of the tombs. And frankly, the French just didn't care. And they had an excuse. (laughs) Well, they were there anyways, which triggered a bit of a boom because all these British uh, archaeologists started going there too because they're like, well, we can't let the the French get a leg up on us. (laughs) And this, this is when, you know... So, so this is just a golden age of Egyptology. So without, without Napoleon being in Egypt, we probably wouldn't have the advances that we, we have now, including the Rosetta Stone, which was found while he was there. No way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, we wouldn't have found the Rosetta Stone without him. And, and it was, I, I mean, I'll forget the, the story, so I won't bother telling it, but essentially there was this weird sequence of events where, where British and French archaeologists were fighting over custody of this thing, and it was kind of up for grabs where exactly it would end up, whether it would be in, in Paris or in Britain. Well, it's currently in the British Museum. Yeah. So that answers that question. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was discovered by French archaeologists, if, if memory serves correctly. I could be wrong. But, um, yeah, that, that really wouldn't have happened. But there's tons of obelisks and things like that that were brought back to France under under Napoleon. And... Um, you know, even it, it, it's kept going in Paris for, for hundreds of years. I mean, even the, the glass pyramid at the at the Louvre now, it's 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 a throwback. The, the the art museums in Paris contain a lot of Egyptian artifacts, artworks. Interesting. And and that's that's very much inspired by Napoleon. So the idea of him having that crypt kind of in that format, I, I kind of wonder. You know, when you, when you look at some of the the stone mausoleums in the in the Valley of Kings, some of them are reminiscent of that style. I sort of wonder how much influence that had on on his actual uh, final resting place. That's an interesting point. Yeah, no, he he was very very influential on Egyptology. I mean, personally, not terribly interested, other than possibly style wise. But no, but he his allowed the resulted in in a lot of discovery. Yeah, he allowed the field to flourish. Also, there's there's Napoleon in uh, North America. France had holdings in the Caribbean. Everybody had holdings in the Caribbean. But especially uh, Saint-Dominique, which you might know as Haiti, mm-hmm. was French territory. Saint-Dominique was a problem in that the French Revolution had resulted in the abolition of slavery. But kind of only in France, kind of not in the Caribbean, kind uh, of. Okay. Really, like, really problematic status for Haiti right. uh, or Saint-Dominique. Haiti was the site of the only successful slave uprising to result in an independent nation in the world. Yep, that could use a podcast all of its own. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Essentially, the French slaves revolted against their masters and managed to do so so successfully that they set up a a government. Now, this took place over quite a long time, basically 1791 through 1804. This is when Napoleon is coming to power. Now, originally he was hoping to use Haiti as kind of a landing ground for the rest of North America. Uh, he still owned the Louisiana Territory at this point in time. And not just that, but the economic resources of Haiti. Haiti is actually a better word for the west half of that island because it's it's the original name for that place. It's the, the native, or it's based on the native name for that place. So Haiti is, is, is generally considered correct unless we're talking about specifically the period under which it was... Uh, ruled by France. Right. Once he lost Haiti, because the, the the revenue that comes in from turning sugar into rum, which is what they did there, is is immense. It can't be overstated. Right. The right. the the sugar trade in the Caribbean was an economic powerhouse at this point in time. 
Once he lost Haiti, he basically gave up on North America. That's where you get the Louisiana Purchase, where essentially Jefferson managed to, or a proxy of Jefferson's managed to purchase a, a third of the North American continent for about $15 million. Napoleon didn't, he felt he felt like he couldn't use it anymore. Not, not effectively anyway, he was too busy in Europe. So, I mean, I'm glad he didn't, but why didn't he try to retake Haiti? Uh, there, there were efforts over years to try and retake Haiti. There were French soldiers sent. The main problem was yellow fever. Uh-huh. You can't fight when you're sick with yellow fever. Nope. And I mean, I'm not going to pretend that that's the only reason, but it gave the locals a significant advantage because they already were immune to yellow fever they for the most part. Care of that. Yeah. <laughs> so any French backup that was sent was immediately stricken by yellow fever and rendered virtually ineffective and it, it killed a very large portion of them and the ones that it didn't left them fairly weak that's no way to run a campaign nope. so he, he realized quickly enough that it was basically a, a sink for any military efforts so he gave up on north america at that point he had other things to do like fighting various numbered coalitions uh, so he, he left it alone one one effect that did come from this was uh and, and this was partially due to the revolution was that he actually uh, reinstated slavery within the French, the larger French empire. And that stuck around until the 1830s, I believe. It solved the problem. And, oh, this sounds so callous, but it solved the problem of declaring universal rights of man in France and then not actually giving those rights to people in colonies. Basically, he said, who are we kidding here? Let's just do things the way we've been doing things, but not, you know, and, and call a spade a spade. Not saying this with any intent of, of uh, defense or understanding, but that's that's what he did. That's a shame mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I think they were close to having been able to take that step earlier than most. Yep, I would agree. The only The only thing I really have to say about that is that if the people of France had not been okay with it, he wouldn't have done it. And I'm not trying to pass blame of no, an action um, made by a dictator but you're saying in an absolutist system. That's how Napoleon rolls. Napoleon does what the people need him to do, and he gets as far ahead as he can without stepping on any toes. Yeah. It solved some moral quandaries for people within France as well as himself. Not in a great way. No. Kind of in the worst way way that humans can subject other humans to. He set everything back. He, he, he very literally did. I mean, this is obviously a much more uh, extreme example of, of his half-hearted em- embracement of the, of, the, uh, of the metric system. Uh, yeah, in a way. He, he, he basically said, okay, revolution was great. We got some good stuff accomplished. Few things we took too far. Apparently one of them was the emancipation of slaves, in his opinion. Which, yeah, is... is Anything I say is going to sound like an understatement. I was going to use disappointing, <laughs> which I, I, I apologize for. But you, like you know what I mean. Like you, you would hope for a what little a bit better. Kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Shucks. Mm-hmm. What else do I have on this list? He created the Bank of France. Essentially, French economy had been uh, had been run by Swiss bankers for the last eighty years or so. 
while, you know, through the crown trying to regain solvency, which they were ultimately unable to do through the revolution and the poor handling of money that happened there while they were all too busy accusing each other of being royalists and chopping off each other's heads. It had basically all been in foreign hands, sometimes very successfully, sometimes not. He decided to create the the Central Bank of France and reform the tax code so that there was actually some sort of control over the economy. Generally, a national bank is a good idea, especially when what you had before was multiple foreign powers having the ability to issue your own currency. That's not a thing you want to outsource. No, I suppose not. The tax code is notable in that what he basically did was take... Before before the revolution, you had all sorts of... Let's just say the tax code was really broken. You had what the taxes should be, and then you had a separate, much bigger layer of all the ways that people could get out of taxes. He got rid of all of that. Napoleon... And, and this this also kind of brings me into the Napoleonic Code, which is sort of the, the linchpin of the, the legacy of Napoleon. Napoleon was very much against anything that gave anyone any sort of advantage on anything other than merit. Napoleon was big on merit. If you were good at something, you deserve to be rewarded for being good at that thing. Which, yeah, that's, that's a pretty reasonable way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Napoleon didn't believe that you should get, say, for example, tax breaks because your family had been uh, nobility for several hundred years. He didn't believe that you should get tax breaks because... You had managed to buy your way into nobility not that long ago. He didn't believe, you know, like there's there's a lot of those things that were sort of built into the tax code beforehand that he kind of went, no, that's not how it works. You pay taxes to the state because the the state is the people, and therefore the people have to support the state. Okay, but today we have things in place preventing stuff like that. You know, lobbyists, which I don't think is a concept that really exists maybe at that time. But I have to imagine that. The nobility, who are not wholly without power, would take issue with that, would they not? One thing that we didn't really have a chance to get into was that during the revolution, most of the nobility fled France because the last thing you want attached to your name during the terror is a noble title. Right. He invited uh, something like 100,000 nobles back into France when he took power, but they owed him. It was like a favor from the dawn. Okay. They didn't really have a place complaining to him about something as minor as the tax breaks that their dad used to get. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. He had something over that. That that answers my question. Hmm. I I mean, there is also the overarching social climate that really makes it very difficult for someone to argue familial titles as an advantage because that was pretty much one of the main issues of the revolution. But, But even beyond that, just allowing them to come home was was quite a hold over the nobility. Napoleonic Code, I'm sure you've heard of. I have heard of it, yes. I know very little about it. Essentially in 1804, well, over the course of several years, but adopted in 1804, Napoleon consulted with a number of top jurists, legal experts, and formatted an entirely new legal code for France. One of the interesting contradictions of European politics at this point in time is that the more similar the people of a nation are the less centralized their legal system tends to be because they don't need the government or the legal system to give them a sense of nationhood of of unity so 
if you in one part of France and I in another part of France live under a completely legal, different legal system, that's okay because we're still both French. We still both speak French. We're still probably both Catholic and we still both feel allegiance towards, depending on when this is, the uh, the Bourbon monarchy slash the Republic of France slash, the, you know, whoever happens to be in power, right? Right. We don't need that. Whereas in somewhere like the the Holy Roman Empire, where everyone's speaking kind of different languages, where everyone has completely different structures, there has to be sort of an overarching system to give a sense of belonging. And that tends to come from a uh, a stronger, more centralized government. Okay. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but when you kind of work through the math in your head, it makes a bit of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And go with it. French law was a mess. Well, if everybody was making up their own rules, I would imagine it is. Yep. I would be afraid to visit another place. It was essentially all based on, like, old medieval codes, which were based on old Roman codes. And depending on where you were in France, they were based on completely different old sorts of codes. Napoleon basically said, this is silly. There was kind of an issue of people knowing what was illegal and what was not. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Because if it's all different everywhere, I don't know how you keep track of it. So what he did was he eliminated any advantages for any social classes. So noble, you break the law, tough luck. He removed all... So so any exemptions, any privileges, those are all gone. He wrote it in vernacular so anyone could understand it. He standardized it across all of France so that wherever you were, you knew what the law was. He had this provision in there. Originally, it's 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 a civil code of law, which means that it's more about... It's, it's a little bit more about disputes between citizens than it is about an actual criminal code. He instated a criminal code later in 1810. And when he did so, oh, that, by the way, that criminal code stood, uh, modified, of course, but stood until 1994. Whoa. Yep. It was pretty, it was pretty robust. Only true crimes were allowed. And I say true in quotes. And essentially what that meant was we, he, he basically said, we're not, going to make crimes based on reactionary emotions on superstitions and things like that we are going to we we need to have like a clear uh wronged party for this to be an illegal act so basically what he's saying is murder definitely illegal heresy not gonna worry about it this was a big deal at that point in time when you know we're not that long after witch trials and things like that. Right, right, right. You know, I, well, I mean, when, when, uh, when his brother Joseph took the throne in, in Spain, one of the things he did to try and gain some popularity was end the Inquisition in the 19th century. So that's the world we're working with. There is, yeah. this is very much a transition period, right? Okay, okay. So, I mean, the the idea of what a true crime is is kind of nebulous, but at least he was trying to make it something uh, that could be legislated on and not necessarily something that just people got upset over. So what did the Catholic Church think of heresy no longer being a crime? Basically, he just told them uh, this is an internal matter. Like, if you if you guys want to deal with this, you can deal with it, but I'm not getting involved. Okay. Separation of church and state began with the, well, I mean, began with the American Revolution, but the French Revolution followed shortly thereafter. I want to say good on him instead of appreciating his achievements, but every time now I'm just going to go back to that other thing. Well, that's the tough thing about Napoleon, isn't it? 
It is. He's he's um. There's there's a lot to to admire and loathe about him. It's almost like he's a real human being and not a one dimensional character. I'm so sorry. <laughs> almost. It's almost like he might be a product of his time in history. Again, I'm gonna look at this painting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll pretend for a second that. He's just that man right there. Now, one of the most interesting things about Napoleonic Code is that it prohibited case decisions. So with the British legal system, which our legal system and the American legal system are based on, there's precedent, right? So if there's a legal decision, you can go back to that legal decision and use that precedent in a ruling. Can't do that in the Napoleonic Code. Any gaps in the actual legislation can be ruled upon, but judges can't can't legislate new rules. There is a full, hard gap between the judicial branch and the legislative branch. He was very clear on that. Okay, okay. And that's a big part of why civil law doesn't have precedent. You know, you can't you can't look to precedent if you're being sued. That's not how it works, right? The Napoleonic Code was... Far from perfect. There are a lot of problems with it. If it was the, the the criminal side of things, it tended to kind of favor the prosecution. It wasn't exactly assumption of guilt, but they had to do a lot of work to make it a little bit far, uh, more fair. Um, it sounds like there was a lot of really good seeds planted as far as the modern legal system is concerned. Well, every time I th- every time I see flaws in the Napoleonic Code, I think to myself, like. Well, you build a legal legal code from scratch, right? Like, 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 where do you even begin? Yeah. So the fact that he built one and that it was functional is is pretty impressive. The Napoleonic Code was adopted all across Europe because all of these countries were still using these weird, outdated medieval systems. A lot of times, the Napoleonic Code was was imposed on them when Napoleon rolled through town, and when he retreated, well, it's not a bad code. We might as well keep it around. <laughs> The Napoleonic Code is the base for for civil law in Louisiana today because because of the Louisiana Purchase because of uh, because of New Orleans being a French holding for so long. Right. Today, Quebec civil law they don't have Canadian civil law. They have Napoleonic Code. Hmm. That was that was built right into the whole transition from like like Quebec chose to adopt the Napoleonic Code from Napoleon. What was up with Quebec during the... Uh... Technically a British holding, but very close ties with France. I mean, part of the part of the terms of Britain holding on to Quebec, especially amidst all this warfare, was basically letting Quebec do what they wanted mm. in a lot of ways. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that because, I mean, they, they, there were a lot of bad things happening in Quebec as well, but they, they had a lot of leeway in terms of deciding their own legislative structure as long as it wasn't directly contradicting... British uh, British rule, it wasn't really a problem. Okay. They were pretty they were pretty content with it. So that's probably a better way of putting it. That's uh, that's more or less what I have on my list here. Overall impressions of Napoleon. I, I mean, especially since you know I learned a lot while I was going through this. A lot of the stuff I didn't know or or had known and forgotten or didn't really realize it tied in like the Haitian Revolution or or kind of you know it, at least this is a new perspective for me. It's interesting that it's as hard to come by information on the Napoleonic era as it is because it was so formative. And I'm not saying it's hard, but it's not... It's not as accurate as you'd probably like it to be. 
it's not as accessible as I'd like it to be. There isn't as much of it as I'd like there to be. And I can't help but feel like World War II kind of ruined that a little bit. Mm. Because if you wanted to talk about World War II, boy, oh boy, we could do that all day long. And I could source till the cows came home. If it wasn't... Now now that I've been bashing speculation for a very long time throughout time this to, topic... Time to speculate. If World War II was somehow out of the picture, this would be considered... Other than other than World War One, this would be considered the biggest combat, uh, the, the biggest war that Europe had ever seen, and World War One was pretty direct. Like you can draw a lot of very direct lines from Napoleon to World War One. Yeah, there's this concept in history called the uh, the Long Nineteenth Century, uh, which is 1789, beginning of the French Revolution, to 1918, end of the First World War. Basically, saying that all of the stuff that happened in there is part of the same continuum. Right. You can draw a line right from the storming of the Bastille right until Armistice to, uh, in November 1918. And he is a big part of that. But the thing about World War I is that, you know, not to, not to downplay the actions of individual actors, but basically they set up a whole bunch of dominoes back in like the 1830s. And once, uh, once, the, once Franz Ferdinand was... was Assassinated. You were just watching dominoes fall as alliances came into play. Well, of course, we know. Well, I actually even know some stories about World War One set up World War Two. So really, but the thing that I see the most parallel, and I am getting into very dangerous territory here. But the thing I see the biggest parallel between World War Two and the Napoleonic Wars is the singular driving force. Right, World War One. It was just kind of everybody playing out what they needed to play out. It was still a, a tremendous level of warfare that had never been seen before, and it was it was still a, 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 a tremendous tragedy. But you, you got the sense that it was somewhat inevitable. Again, that doesn't forgive anything, but you can't point to one guy and say, this is the guy, like, if he had just calmed down a little bit, there isn't that guy in World War One. No, there definitely is that guy in World War Two, mm-hmm. and then there's that guy in, oh, I don't know, the Napoleonic Wars. Who actually got it named after himself. Yeah, exactly. Man, the Hitler Wars sounds so <laughs> fake. It does. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, before before uh, before Hitler, I mean, Napoleon was the study of the the superego, you know, kind of, or the, 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 the egomaniac run rampant. Well... And as world conquerors go, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Napoleon is he is someone I feel like we know a little more about. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not, you know, he's not history's greatest monster. I don't want to sit here and talk about Hitler, who is currently history's greatest monster. Mm-hmm. Napoleon still did some bad stuff, but I'm not getting a genocidal vibe off of him, off of anything he told me. No, but I mean, there was there was an empire building vibe, very much so, and oh my yes. and I mean, yeah, you 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 start getting into moral semantics that are trickier than I'd like to discuss at the moment. Yeah, I was choosing my words as carefully as possible. Too. Oh, I know that feeling, man. But I, I mean, the the fact of the matter is that that for a very long time, people judged Napoleon as this guy who was expanding for expansion's sake, for for empire building's sake, and and you know, he should have just. He just should have just quit. Now, I mean, a lot of that was reaction to the uh, the actions of 
forces outside of France trying to put an end to the revolution. And obviously it was taken way too far, but, and once again, he started it isn't a great reason for going on a 15 year long campaign against the rest of the Western world. But there's so many points in the story where it's like, he should have just stopped. Mm -hmm. If he'd stopped, Mm -hmm. everything would have been fine. Yeah. And, and I mean, as, as much reading as I've done about him, I, I read about, you know, how he's an incredible, an incredibly capable commander. He's very astute at, at sort of analyzing a situation and, and understanding what the best plan for the situation is about how he had a, a photographic memory, how he was incredibly ambitious, but also in, extremely charming, uh, how he, he could gain the loyalty of his troops without even trying. They loved him, uh, about how, how France loved him, about how, you know, nobody was opposed to what he was doing uh, outside of outside of France and all these wars. I still don't really feel like I have the best read on the guy. Yeah. He's a little enig- uh, enigmatic to me that in, in that I, I uh, you know, is it just a matter that he, he was pushed a little too much and he started pushing back? Is it that he was trying to, you know, did he just have France's best interests at heart? And to him that meant building up a huge buffer of, of safety, of economic pres- prosperity, of making sure that his enemies couldn't come back to hit him a second time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a great read on that. And the more I think about it, the more I'm reminded of a forest fire where it's no one's fault that lightning strikes. And in a lot of ways, maybe it's good that all the dead brush is cleared out. But, you know, there's a lot of trees that get burned in the process and they're probably not too happy about it. The revolution was very much a lightning strike in that it shook Europe to the core. There hadn't been anything like that ever. Ever. Or at least for so long that it might as well never have happened. Because we can always look to Rome. <laughs> we can always look to Rome. But if it had been quashed, if a bourbon had been put back on the throne, it would have been a hiccup. Who knows how this would have played out. It, it, impossible to say. You're, you're absolutely right. But with a guy like Napoleon, I mean, he... When he left the scene, a bourbon was back on the throne. France was the same size it was at the time of the revolution. Everyone was more or less where they used to be. And yet Europe would never, ever, ever possibly be the same. It was incapable of being the same ever again. Whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know if I'm qualified to say. I don't know if anyone's qualified to say. doesn't matter. You're saying he left his mark. He left his mark. Good or bad. And, and and there's no one that could possibly deny that. And, and that's where I'm reminded of this forest fire was that Europe was, was choked and tangled and he came along and he cleared things out, if nothing else. And I mean, there's there's a lot of other stuff there, but if, if there was one thing I had to point to Napoleon for, it was that he made the changes of the French Revolution a, a, a permanent fixture of Europe. He made it a, an indelible thing. And he, in many ways, set up the course of the next century of European history. And that's why nothing that we can sit here and talk about today, or even for several more days, could possibly reflect the magnitude of change that he uh, affected on, on our history. I hope we gave it a good go. Yeah. I think we covered a lot of ground. I think that sums it up pretty good. But my goodness, what else do you say about this guy? I don't know. I, I agree with you in that, you know, labeling him as a force for good or evil, I, I don't think is was the job of the podcast. I don't think it's even possible for us to to do effectively. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the crazy thing about Napoleon is he, he 
there's there's this conflict in in history, and it's, it's not as much of a conflict anymore. But the 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 great man theory of history, which is a, this idea that history is just the biography of a few great men, was the was the original quote. That you know these these these. Uh, extraordinary individuals come along from time to time and they affect the course of all of humanity. And then there was this reaction to it, which basically said that no history is sort of this, this force that is built up of such small uh, indistinguishable things that by the time they're actually visible on a macro scale, it's impossible to trace it back to its roots. Most historians today would tell you that it's a mix of both. And I don't think there's a better example of it than Napoleon. Something had to happen. The revolution was a mess. Something was going to happen. It happened to be him, but that's not to say that if it wasn't him, it wouldn't have been somebody else. Exactly. And that's not to say that if there wasn't a revolution that Napoleon couldn't have aspired to greatness, but that doesn't mean that it would have been to the same heights that he actually managed to achieve. Right. He's this incredible convergence of both ideas in history. And I feel like everything about him somehow gets away from a human scale. You know, it just... It just escapes me every single time I try to grasp onto that and ride that ride. It doesn't work. None of it works. And, and that's, you know, that, that alone is, is, is absolutely astounding. The thing for me is, and I'll come back to this because it astounded me at the time, and it's probably the most weird thing about him for me. He left his island mm-hmm. and he said, let's go, let's, let's just make another go of it. Let's mm-hmm. try this again. Mm-hmm just did it they just did it i don't understand i think i'm not going to pretend to understand them i sort of feel like if i was the man that was the one making that call and i had the chance to go on that ride with napoleon just see where it takes me i would have a hard time saying no i suppose I, I i don't know i don't know i i again i can't i can't say that you know i can't speak for for the the men who who and it wasn't. It wasn't even as, as though a, a commander made that call. I, they, they, the troops turned and, and unanimously proclaimed. They, they shouted out, uh, "Vive l'empereur!" I, I, I can't pretend to be inside their heads, but if you had the shot, yeah, yeah, I suppose. And I think, I think in all, in a lot of ways, that sort of sums up Napoleon. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun talking, Napoleon. Thank you for having me. This was. Uh... This was what I hoped it would be. Excellent. Good to you. Wrapping up a figure that looms as large over history as Napoleon does in a quick sign-off is next to impossible, so I'll just limit myself to saying that without the singular influence he held over Europe, the world would almost certainly be a very different place. To guess how would, of course, be speculation, and we never do that around here, right? The next episode will be going up on New Year's Day, and will be all about the fall of Constantinople. Until then, I hope you all enjoy your holiday season. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.